and he called the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and give them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, what's the most abused verse of all time? I know, judge not, lest ye therefore be judged, right? And why is that that we all quote it from the King, Kim James Version? You know, what's up with that? Maybe it's because it sounds a thousand times more sanctimonious? <laughs> hey, maybe that's a good reason not to quote from the KJV on that one, which, in case you are wondering, does not stand for the King Jesus Virgin, Version. And, and no, Yeshua didn't preach from it. And no... God didn't originally author the Bible in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek just because English hadn't been invented yet and so that he could hide prophetic tidbits like the last Trump being, you know, about Donald Trump being the Antichrist or any other American president for that matter or the mark of the beast being masks because there's one letter difference between mark and mask and you laugh. But I've seen people say that without considering the ramifications of what they are suggesting and you know it's really weird that I mentioned Donald Trump because <laughs> I'm recording this on October 14th and the election hasn't happened yet and of course he'll still be our president when this airs in uh, the second week of uh, of November but he may not be for long I don't know you know we just don't know anyway so this account um with the uh, ministry of the twelfth and the shaking off of the dust is um, repeated in Matthew ten, Luke nine, and Luke ten. If we count it, if we count the uh, sending out of the seventy-two, as well. Now Matthew ten includes the second most abused verse in the Bible: "Freely you have received, now freely give." But we're going to cover that one in terms of patient, patron, patient client. Patron-client relations when we go back and cover the Gospel of Matthew. But um, today we're going to talk about the two-by-two ministry of the Twelve and why they were sent out in twos, which is super cool, and how we have misused the expression, shaking the dust from your feet. How many, you know, have, um, frankly, you know, turned it into a cheap shot temper tantrum at the end of an unwon debate or, or you know, whenever they're miffed or, or something. I've heard a lot of people do it. But, um, sorry, I had a highlighter cap in my mouth. But I think that when you find out what it meant in context and how it was to be used, you won't use it so frivolously or for your own purposes anymore. At least I hope not. It wasn't supposed to be a little insult. 
Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of our Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And by the time this airs, it was it should have been last week that um, my new radio show, Context for Kids, aired on Hebrew Nation Radio. So... There's that. I also have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the links for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. And as usual, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com, which I keep adding to. I just read a whole nother book just for <laughs> just for a teaching I'm doing on Mark chapter seven. But it also will be for the Lord's Supper. So, you know, if my husband's listening, no, honey, I'm going to use it for many, many teachings. <laughs> now, we're going to back up one verse. You know, we're going to go back one verse and summarize last week's teaching because it this is another Mark and Sandwich. Except this is a huge one spanning almost an entire chapter because, you know, in uh, chapter 6, verse 30, they come back and report their successes. And, of course, next week... Um, we're going to cover the um, the death of John the Baptist. So we've got that in between these bookends about the ministry of the Twelve. Now, so verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And this is a, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Okay, what is this referring to? If you missed last week or just forgot, or, you know, because you have a life or something, you know, outside of listening to me, then you need to know that Yeshua was just rejected at Nazareth. And they were severely questioning the source of his authority and teachings and power. And maybe even questioning his mom's virtue, which is not cool. He taught in their synagogue and healed just a few people and then he left on his third mentioned preaching tour of the villages um the others were mentioned in um excuse me in uh chapter 1 verse 14 and chapter 1 verse 39 but this sandwich is an odd one all right because last week we have him projected. This week we have him sending out the disciples in response to his own rejection. And, and next week we see the results or consequences of their going out in groups preach. And after that, you know, they come back and report to him what happened. Okay, chapter 6, verse 7. 
And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Oh, and I'm going to add here that this section marks the climax of the first part of Mark's gospel. All right. Missionaries have been trained, equipped, and given authority. Okay, that's, that's really important. Now, two witnesses is a recurring theme in scripture, right? Let's go through them real quick here. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Matthew 18:16 But if he does not listen take one or two others among you, along with you that every charge may be established on the evidence of one or two or I'm sorry of two or three witnesses Uh 1 Timothy 5:19 Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses and then we famously have the two witnesses from Revelation 11, which I wrote a blog about back in July, which I will link to this transcript as long as I remember. That's why I have the highlighter, so I remember to do these things as I'm going through. <laughs> now, in wanting to make the Gospels more Jewish, when it's impossible to do so, um, I mean, it's impossible to make them more Jewish, right? They're entirely Jewish, as is. Now, people sometimes try to scramble to match up every verse with the Torah, but not everything links back to the Torah. And this is a good example of that. This is a cultural thing, not a Torah thing. Okay, Torah was written within a larger culture. Like John Walton says, the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us. Their context was different than ours, and so things went unmentioned that they took for granted that we go, huh? Okay, so the disciples are not going out as legal witnesses of crimes, but as messengers to the witness, to their witness of the arrival of the kingdom of God. In this, they line up with two other witnesses in scripture, those in Revelation 11. Revelation 11 is often misunderstood because it's not read as ancient apocalyptic literature, which was written to people who needed to be reminded that A, Despite all the troubles going on around them, they needed to remember that God wins, even though we suffer losses and things, you know, and things will be made right in the end. And B, people who are caught up on the favorable side of the worldly system of wealth, consumerism, and oppression need to be warned that there will be a reckoning. It was never meant to be read as a prophetic roadmap to the future. And they, and they wouldn't have read it that way. To them, it was a reminder and a warning that in the end, God wins so that they continue to endure trial or resist temptation, whichever one was appropriate to their situation in life. You know, whether you're Smyrna or Laodicea. <clears throat> but the other problem with how we read Revelation 11 is that we don't link up link it up to the sending of the 12 and then the 72 
or the 70 in groups of two. And, and there's a cultural reason for that, that they would all have been familiar with. So <clears throat> everyone in the ancient world knew that no king or great man only sent out one witness with a message. Now, God never did. He always sent out multiple people. Maybe not together, but there was always more than one giving the message. Moses had Aaron with him, right? Even Yeshua was preceded by John the Baptist. But important messages required more than one messenger to ensure the integrity of that message. You know, one messenger could deliver a false message and, you know, who's to know? And how long would it take to know? I mean, today people will pass on nonsense on memes or forward lies without even verifying the contents. And that's with access, I mean, unfettered access to information. You know, they don't check and, and they have no excuse when they pass on something that isn't true. And a lot of times they'll say, well, I passed it on just in case it was true. I said, I'll remember that the next time I hear a juicy bit of gossip against you and I'll pass it on just in case it's true. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> I, there was a time in my life I would have. I don't do that anymore. But these guys in uh, these small towns, you could give a fake message and the results could be disastrous. You might send one ambassador to another nation with a message of peace, and if the messenger was crooky, crooked, crooky, crooked, you might end up with war instead. So the disciples were sent out in twos because they bore the message of a king about his kingdom. The king about the kingdom, actually. And, and we see the same thing in Revelation 11, because God's messengers in the kingdom are represented as official ambassadors and messengers of the king. You know, those witnesses in Revelation are us, people who are sometimes beaten and killed and rejoiced over in our misery or maybe gruesome death. Uh, but the message at the end of the mini parable, because it's a mini parable in Revelation, is that there is a resurrection of the righteous and we will be vindicated. No matter what they do. I, I laid out the whole spiel in my blog if you're interested in reading it, but I have rabbit trailed enough for today. So, we miss this cultural indicator of them going out as royal messengers. In, in service to the king of kings with the good news about his kingdom. A message too important to be left to someone like Judas acting alone. Hello. Because we know how that guy operates when he's left by himself. And that's actually my favorite part of this whole teaching right there. Royal messengers. You know, I, I wonder if the three groups of brothers were sent out together or separated. <laughs> you could make good arguments for, you know... Either way, uh, no way to know. I would have separated them, especially James and John. I'll, you know, some town is going to get charbroiled because they wouldn't have Yeshua to ask for permission to rain down, you know, brimstone and yeah. Oh, those two remind me of my boys, and and they were given authority over unclean spirits. <coughs> Excuse me. That's an important part of this royal messenger picture. The way one would treat a royal messenger is how you would treat the one who sent him. To insult the messenger is to insult the king. 
To refuse to give hospitality is to spurn the king. To refuse to acknowledge the authority of the king is to be a rebel. And so with that in mind, they were given this authority over unclean spirits and the unclean spirits had to obey them. Notice they were not given authority over people. A lot of folks with delusions of grandeur conveniently miss that part. <laughs> you know, they, they were never given authority to rule over people the way Gentiles were guilty of. You know, not to mention quite a few Jews as well. I mean, otherwise Yeshua wouldn't have, have had to warn them. It's like, you know, it's not going to be this way among you guys. <laughs> he wasn't doing it because, you know, it wasn't going on within Judaism. Hello, Sadducees. Okay. Now, they were going out as Yeshua to conquer God's demonic enemies as part of delivering the good news. So they were going out as though they were Yeshua. Obviously not, they weren't Yeshua, but as though they were. Ah, chapter 6, verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread. No bag. No money in their belts. Now let's stop here. Take nothing. Really, uh, with the list it meant, you know, it, go immediately with the walking stick in your hand. Don't delay. Don't plan out what you're going to do, where you're going to go. Just go. Warn them. Give them hope. Drive out demons as proof and as mercy. Now, a staff in those days, you know, we're going to talk about the contents of the things they were allowed to take. A staff in those days wasn't just for walking and for warding off wild animals. It was also worn, this is cool, and right now my back hurts, so I could really use one of these across the back as a brace. You know, which when I learned that, it struck me as a really good idea. Now, no bread is obvious. It puts them at the mercy of the people they are going to. No bag is a bit harder to explain and is the source of a bit of debate. The KJV translated it as wallet, which is definitely not correct. Travelers would be more likely to have their money sewn or hidden in their clothing, but a bag would probably be meaning a beggar's bag. They were not to beg for funds along the way. They represented God, and as such, they were never to be reduced to begging at the city gates as shamed people. No money in their belts. Means they were not to take and spend their own money for the trip. The people to whom they preached would be held responsible for supporting them, or not, as we'll see. Uh, let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 3. See what Paul has to say about this. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without getting any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen, 
or I'm sorry, is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we can reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do do not we even more? And this shamefully, shamefully um, was and is an ongoing problem. Folks who can support often do so the least. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, I yesterday when I announced that my new radio show was coming out and, you know, I have expenses involved in, in putting out a new radio show and so some of the people bought me some of the books that I will need to teach the kids and because um, it's a different area of study than I currently do and I also asked for financial you know donations I got one I got one from a widow on a limited income you know what that's the kind of person she is but I told her I said you know you silly goose <laughs> but uh, widows might and the person who can't afford it's doing it because she wants the kids supported and you know nothing ever changes anyway verse 9 chapter mark chapter 6 verse 9 but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics well you know thank goodness for that imagine having to go barefoot like isaiah who was also naked as well this is not the best climate for going barefoot thorns and thistles and rocks so they aren't being sent out like Isaiah for three years with the bad news that Assyria was going to destroy and exile the allies of the king of Judah. They were being sent out with good news. Therefore, they get to keep their shoes and their clothes, but they just can't take an extra tunic, just in case. That's right. No special clothes for the synagogue or for staying in rich people's houses or even for, you know, having something else to wear while you wash your clothes. Or... Okay, and this is a big war. Wearing two tunics might have been idiomatic for changing the message or delivering an entirely false message. This is really cool. In Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, book 17, chapter 5, verse 7, we get this account of a messenger who had a second secret message sewn in his extra tunic. But while the king was in doubt about it, one of Herod's friends, seeing a seam upon the inner coat of the slave and dub a doubling of the cloth, for he had two coats on, he guessed that the letter might be within that doubling, which accordingly proved to be true. So they took out the letter and its contents were these, and I will spare you the very convoluted palace intrigues of the Herodian family and multiple messages, some true and some false, needless to add, but I will anyway. A messenger wearing two tunics was not always seen as an honest messenger. Verse 10, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. We can all understand the temptation here. Not everyone who practices hospitality is going to be wealthy like Abraham or Lot. Maybe the first person you meet is poor but generous and they invite you to stay. You get there, but the food isn't great and the accommodations are humble. 
But then you start preaching, and the wealthiest guy in town wants you to come over to his place and promises you some roasted goat and cheese and, and bread made with fine flowers and, and dates instead of the poor man's lentils. But you do not shame that generous family by following your stomach elsewhere. Because the food, I'll tell you something, the food you got from that poor man is a banquet. You know, because it's coming from, you know, what he doesn't have to spare instead of the rich man who just probably give you maybe a little bit better than he eats on a regular basis, but maybe not. But it's not costing him anything. As a matter of fact, he's, you know, getting some notoriety out of, uh, out of hosting them. So we will be right back in, oh my goodness, about five minutes with the second part of the Ministry of the Twelve. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of this week's Character in Context. We're, uh, we're in Mark chapter 6, talking about the ministry of the Twelve and the shake, shake, shaking of the dust off those feet. And I'm hopefully going to break you. Of, hopefully you already don't use it frivolously or like a little temper tantrum. <laughs> I've seen people do. I'm going to explain to you what it really means and why you shouldn't. All right. Chapter 6, verse 11, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so we get to this verse that causes a lot of folks out there to behave in a very silly manner. Let's attack the front of it before attacking the end. Yeshua was heralded by John the Baptist as being the mightier one who would baptize in fire. The miracles demanded a decision by those who saw them. Is this man from God, doing the works of God and preaching the message of God? Or do his message, and does his message, ooh, bad grammar there, does his message and do his works derive from the demonic? That was the question that demanded an answer when they were confronted with the dismantling of Satan's kingdom before their very eyes as his demons were being booted to the curve left and right. They didn't have curbs, but they, it's okay. Now, Yeshua's disciples are sent out with the same message and the same power and authority. Not in Mark, but in Luke, the 72 come back raving about their success in evicting demons from people they encountered, all right? The decisions demanded when, you know, the decisions that were demanded whenever Yeshua did this will not be demanded when they do this, okay? They have the message accompanied by the dunamis, the miracles. And now people have one of two choices. Um, you know, receive them or reject them. So far, the only rejection has been from the Pharisees, the scribes, 
and the citizens of Nazareth. Oh, and the people whose pigs were killed? The normal people were loving him, his message, and his works on their behalf. Now, when we covered the parable of the sower, we saw a reference to excuse me, Isaiah 6-9, where Yahweh is saying that the people are being stricken with blindness because the leadership of Judah has become an enemy to Yahweh. In the Beelzebul controversy, we see that they have blasphemed the spirit by slandering the source of Yeshua's authority. Increasingly, we are going to see the theme of insider versus outsider become the theme of insider versus enemy versus undecided. The more Yeshua reveals his identity through his works, the guiltier those who reject him become. And now that guilt also attaches itself to those who reject his ambassadors. But, and this is a big but, you know, as we talked about, outsider is not a permanent status. Outsiders can become insiders through faith, so we must be patient and non-condemning. You know, just because somebody is not getting it, we can't assume they're never going to get it. So, go to town, teach and preach, heal, toss out demons, and if, after all that, they still reject you then? Yeah, shake the dust from your feet. In uh, Tosefta Babakama 1.5, and the Tosefta was, um, it's different writings that didn't make it in time to be in the Talmud. The Tosefta come after the Talmud, and they still had things left to say, you know. So, uh, Tosefta Babakama 1.5 states, the dust of Syria pollutes as that of alien countries. So, when someone left Eretz Israel and entered into foreign territory, it was believed that even the dust of the place would defile them. Okay? When they came back to the land, they would shake the defiling dust from their feet so as to not bring it in. I don't think it would probably be very um, successful. I mean, dust gets everywhere. Um, so Yeshua was saying that a town that would not receive them after all that, the message plus the miracles, okay, was to be treated as heathen territory. Of course, not understanding this or having perspective on this leads to some very shameful behavior. You know, someone told me yesterday that they were once in a Bible study where this gal was just determined that everyone believe that there were aliens on other planets and this was really important to her that everyone accepted. And when they wouldn't, she stomped off and made a big, huge show of actually scraping the bottoms of her shoes on the doorsteps as she went out as a witness against them. Because aliens, and when I said yesterday, that's when I wrote this. <laughs> this is not actually yesterday. This was like months ago at this point. You know, not quite up to the standard of, I walked in here with no food or money, and then preached the gospel, and healed your sick, and delivered people from demonic oppression, and then you told me to hit the road. You know, let's, yeah. Gosh, we are such drama queens. You know, I remember once, oh my gosh, being called in on a post from a friend of mine. 
another former pornography user, which, you know, if you, I did uh, my testimony at Yom Kippur. Okay. So if you, you haven't heard that, I, I suggest it. It's, it's important that uh, it, it shouldn't be in the shadows. Okay. Anyway, so he's a former pornography user too. And we're really, really rabid against it now. Yeah. And they were discussing whether or not Game of Thrones was soft porn. I was called in as an expert on pornography and pornography addiction, you know, which I'm an expert for all the wrong reasons, you know, but 21 years free from it now, praise God, actually almost 22. Yeah. In January. Woohoo. And, you know, I was asked to weigh in and I said that absolutely it's at the very least soft porn. Well, somebody I had ministered to for years got furious with me over it, argued with me online, and then sent me a private message calling me the biggest hypocrite of all time. And I really didn't think I was that high in the rankings, but okay. And telling me that God was no longer with me before blocking any more messages. And it's sort of the same thing, this blocking of people over something so insignificant. And I was frankly shocked to hear that God was such a huge Game of Thrones fan and that he would remove his spirit from me just because I called it porn when asked my opinion. And I know I, I had people, you know, actually do that internet shaking the dust off my feet to me so many times that I can't even think of examples right now. And it's silly. I, I've never seen it used where it wasn't just posturing or throwing a tantrum. Some folks do it in their minds as sort of a breaking away from a situation, but the announcements are invariably just silly. But I'm a firm believer that unless you do all the stuff that Yeshua told them to do, you don't get to knock the dust off your feet. And I don't know of anyone who's ever had that happen, you know, where they've done all that. It's... It's about perspective and humility. And what are the actual stated requirements and circumstances where we do and do not get to do this? Uh, people want to do this because folks won't believe them or take their word for something. Or my personal favorite, you know, can't win an argument. These are not reasons for insinuating that the other person is an outsider, a heathen, a defiling presence. And, uh, you know, we can't draw a very narrow boundary around ourselves and believe that everything or anyone too far outside our comfort zone is defiled. Um, around ourselves is absolutely not where we should draw our boundaries, but around him. And then we better dang sure make certain that we are inside that boundary before we go worry about anyone else. Can you imagine just for a minute what would happen if Yeshua was anything like us and how we are so quick to just write other people off and decide that they are either defiled or heathens or whatever? I mean, dang, we've really got a lot of nerve, right? Back to the back to the chapter. So verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is the disciples. Okay, boom. And so he just told them to go and, and they just went and proclaimed that people should repent. Just like John the Baptist's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is dear. Bring us your sick and we will prove that the awaited time has come. And when they get back in Mark 30, we see no indication that they were not taken care of again. It is the self-appointed and official leadership and the representatives who are rejecting this and not the general public. All right, verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Again, and I love this about Mark. He always makes it clear that there is a difference between physical problems and demonic problems. There is healing over here, and then there's demonic deliverance over there. And, I mean, I don't mean here, Liz. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the same place, but, you know, they're just two different things, okay? In the ancient world, there was a lot of misplaced belief in all sickness being demonic, and you still get that in cultures that practice animism, which actually has nothing to do with animals, but is the belief that in the existence of individual spirits that inhabit natural objects and phenomenon. In other words, a whole lot of demons going on. Demons that must be appeased. Demons that you do not want to offend. Demons that are responsible for everything bad that happens and who cling to certain families and cause deformities and sickness and poverty. Yeshua never puts those things together. Now, I have seen Pentecostal preachers and even within the Hebrew Roots movement, you know, try to cast out uh, a spirit of poverty, but I never saw Yeshua do that. No, he says the poor are there for us to take care for, not to exercise. Our goal in life is not to be rich, but to alleviate the suffering of others. Sometimes that means deliverance, and I have ministered that on numerous occasions, but far more often, you know, I, I support people financially when they're in distress, all right? Now, here's another sort of abused bit of scripture. Despite... What memes claim the apostles were not going around with essential oils treating people for illnesses, okay? There is no way on earth they would have such things available to them. What they had was olive oil. And we have to recognize that oils are never seen being used for healing in the Hebrew scriptures. Um... What this is, in context, is about identification. Remember, I said Hebrew scriptures, so don't go after me with the good Samaritan thing, you know, Hebrew scriptures. Now, so what this is in context is about identification, okay? Because they were healing people miraculously on the spot, not over an extended period of time. People in the ancient world were anointed as part of their identification. Kings were anointed, and so were priests. Mashiach means anointed one, as does Christos. When people in the Gospels and epistles were anointed with oil and prayed over, many scholars believe, and I also believe, that they were partaking in a prophetic statement and act. This was an identification with the anointed one, the Messiah, through whom the healing was happening. Notice that Yeshua doesn't anoint people with oil. Only his disciples and later followers do. There is more to this prophetic act, okay? Any Levite or priest with a defect could not be anointed to serve in the tabernacle and temple. And so, 
This anointing could also be pointing to the restoration of a kingdom of priests where all would be made whole and all brought into service. And this has been a big theme in Mark. People not only being healed, but restored in such a way that they can become, you know, fully functioning members of the community again. In a time without the Americans with Disabilities Act or Medicaid or Social Security or in other countries socialized, you know, medicine and socialized everything. Not that those things aren't a form of social. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. We can't even begin to imagine the isolation and feelings of worthlessness. All right. They were considered to be cursed by God. And I'm so glad my own beloved son, Andrew, you know, he's disabled. There's a lot of disabilities, but that he didn't have to deal with that. I am going to share a bit of silliness with you about the use of oil in superstition in Judaism in Hellenistic times. Now, I mentioned and even quoted from the Testament of Solomon, where we talked about the Beelzebul controversy, okay? That's when we heard about uh, Belial, Beliar, but this document is plain nuts, okay? And it's a really good example of why pseudepigraphic literature is not scripture, even when it claims to be written by a Bible character, in this case, Solomon. Different times and different cultures have different ways of writing, and you won't see any first-hand accounts in Judaism in the Bible. Okay? Everything is written in the first person in Testament of Solomon, okay? Not in the third person, the way the Bible's written. The Bible reads like a narrated book um and everything in the hebrew scriptures is third person i believe except for the psalms um some of the psalms and uh nebuchadnezzar's personal account and daniel and a few incidents with some of the prophets otherwise the action's never narrated as from that perspective. Of course, Psalms aren't narrated, so it's, it's different. Moses never said, I did such and such. He wrote about himself as a detached witness. The epistles are all first person, but they were private letters. Some of the Psalms as well, but the historical accounts are not written that way. That is actually something that the Jews picked up during Persian and Hellenistic times. It's a different kind of literary form. But it never uh, translated over into the accounts of the Gospels. We also see it in Revelation, but then Revelation was written in this same sort of apocalyptic style, and Revelation was written more like an epistle. As a matter of fact, it was written as letters to seven congregations. Now, all that is to say that when you see something historical written in the first person, um, and I'll put historical in quotation marks here, it isn't likely to be anything other than creative fiction, like the Testament of Solomon. And when it was originally written in Koine Greek, that just, you know, that just cinches it. But this document, okay, boy, howdy, Bob. You know, boy, golly, Bob, howdy, as Slinky would say. I mean, the stuff they came up with after the exile. This book is a fictional account about Solomon being given the ability to control demons with this ring. And it's chock full of rituals and superstition. Now, I perform deliverance, so I know demons are real, but this stuff is very much a product of 
those times when they were in contact with other cultures and some downright magical beliefs not rooted in the authority of God, but in belief and using rituals to control demons. And some of this stuff is just flat out hilarious about how Solomon was controlling different demons. In the Testament of Solomon, 1834, the 30th of 36 heavenly bodies speaks and says, I am called, I, and I didn't even look at it, pronounce these, um, Rix Physicoreth, and I bring on long-term illnesses. If anyone puts salt into olive oil, it, it, olive is in parentheses, but it's, if anyone puts salt into oil and massages his sickly body with it, saying, cherubim, seraphim, help me, I retreat immediately. So here we have olive oil being used in what amounts to a, a magic ritual. You have the actions and you have the precise words that needed to be set. Also, you're calling on angels and not on the authority of God. And this is very inspired by paganism. Of course, you know, they didn't see it that way. And if you remember um, the teaching I did about what, what physicians were pulling on women with menstrual issues, you're already not surprised. But these 36 demons are responsible for inflicting people with everything from diarrhea and hemorrhoids to angina, kidney failure, bladder infections, gas, you name it. And there's a specific ritual involved with controlling each. You know, I can tell you it's pure nonsense. We never see Yeshua's disciples getting fancy or writing a demon's name on a piece of wood with a ship to get rid of them. Well, a piece of wood from a ship to get rid of them. You know, tell them to leave, and they go. And, uh, you know, I always thought when diarrhea came from eating too much fruit, not demons, you know. Maybe demons hang around too much fruit. I don't know. Now, case in point, and some of you guys might get mad at me, but, you know, I don't care. I never care. There is this African doctor who is was much in the news when I wrote this, but, um, this was back in July, I think, when I wrote this. But because she was promoting a popular potential cure for COVID, people were really promoting her. And if kids are listening, you might just want to change the channel. No, you do want to change the channel. The thing is that she believes some crazy stuff that is not supported by the Bible or by my experience with deliverance ministry. She has this idea that women who are barren, women like me, that they have um, uterine cysts because of sex with demons. That's it. It's because of the sperm, you know, it, it's because of the sperm of demons, you know, and, and the thing is that good friends of mine are listening to her, friends who even have debilitating and even terminal illnesses, and I know how badly they've suffered because of people who assumed that they are afflicted by demons. I have ministered to them because this stuff is nonsense. It's very damaging and hurtful. It's also rooted in ignorance. The Bible clearly differentiates between physical disabilities and sicknesses and demons. They are not the same. Sometimes demons can act in ways that mimic illness, but they are not behind every medical problem. So people are latching onto this and all of a sudden, all the work I've done for years and years, Telling people that the reproductive organs and the brain are organs that can be sick and damaged just like any other 
and are not automatically tied to demons or curses, well, you know, here I am seeing people saying that this just makes sense because they like her views on how to treat COVID. But I have to tell you, there are no pains like the pain of being barren and no stigma like the stigma associated with mental illness. Ascribing this sort of belief, ascribing to this sort of belief just because you like a person's view on one issue, you know, it may not matter to you if you have a house full of kids, but to someone like me who was born with a twisted uterus, damage to the vertebrae that houses the nerves connecting to my reproductive system, and ovaries that make no more than a few days of progesterone a month, and for that matter, has suffered over the years, you know, with strokes and mini strokes. Well, this isn't a harmless belief. It's a product of very deep-seated African prejudice and, and persecution against women who are unmarried and women who are barren. It goes back to paganism, and it's carried over into Christianity. Um, and, and, you know, the judgment and condemnation that comes to someone like me when this sort of thing, I mean, can you imagine being accused of this, having sex with demons? It's no laughing matter. And yes, there are people who will take that sort of teaching and assume that I've had sex with demons, which, stroke or no, I think I would remember. So, you know, be wise. If you don't want your illness attributed to demons and, and, and rail against it when it happens, you know, extend that same courtesy to others. So, you know, next week we'll be looking at the death of John the Baptist and the very sordid circumstances revolving around his execution and, uh, Oh, that was crazy. <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, yeah, that was kind of a weird thing to end it all off with, right? It's kind of like, now we just, where do we go from there? What do I even talk about? Oh, well, I guess all I can really say is, uh, see you next week. <laughs>